What do you do when knowing God doesn't help you? What do you do when knowing God doesn't help? Job was a good man, blameless and upright, one who feared God and who shunned evil. The greatest man among all the peoples of the East, we're told as the book opens in chapter 1. Later on in chapter 29, we see Job described as one who people waited for as for refreshing showers, drinking in his words as the spring rain. When Job smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of his face was precious to them. Job was a good man, a godly man, a generous and wise man, a great man to know. But then his world fell apart. In a single day, he was attacked from every angle. His wealth, his livestock, his servants were all taken and killed. And the news comes to Job in wave after wave of destruction and despair. And just when he is going numb from the shock of it, he finds that he is not numb, but feels the ice pierce his heart as news comes that his ten children have been wiped out. And then it's not long before Job's own body bears the marks of suffering. Angry sores cover his whole body, so many that he's unrecognisable to his friends, excruciating to the touch and yet itching so badly that in desperation he takes a broken shard of pottery and starts scraping. Such suffering. Suffering that causes his three friends to weep aloud at the sight of him and which causes Job to wish he were dead. Indeed, to wish that he had never lived Chapter 3, verse 3, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, A boy is born, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, may no light shine upon it. And those of you who have known this sort of suffering will know that that is not hyperbole. Job isn't exaggerating for effect when the pain is so raw that every second feels like an hour. When grief and pain fill your every thought and deny you any rest, then you are left wishing for anything that will make it stop, even if that means that your life has to stop. And yet it does not stop. On and on, chapter after chapter, it rolls. And so in chapter 19, we hear Job's anguish continue. Have a look at verse 10. God tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Job is afflicted by God. For him it's as though he's poked his head out of his small tent one morning to find the full might of the army of God surrounding him, every tank and gun trained at his heart. Of course, we know from chapters 1 and 2 that God is not actually Job's enemy, but it feels like that to him. Now, for Job, it's not just the Lord who is against him, it's everyone. He is all alone. He goes on, verse 13, God has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. I love that verse. Job's suffering has left him alone. Have you known that? 
The loneliness that comes when you are in such pain that people start to avoid you because they don't know what to say. Or the loneliness that comes when the weeks have passed and the phone calls and the visits and the cards have stopped. Uh, When everyone else is back to normal but you are still hurting so much. Suffering and sorrowful, afflicted and alone. For some here tonight, this issue of suffering and how our understanding of God fits into it may be a theoretical one, a dispassionate one. But that is not the way the book of Job approaches it. It is intensely personal. It is brutally real. Born out of the extreme agony of this man who cries out for answers, who cries out for hope, and who at times just cries out. And because suffering has touched our lives, or perhaps because we know that we won't avoid it for too much longer, we join with Job and we cry out too. But what is the cry? If we know the reality of suffering, then what is the problem of suffering? What is the question that we want answers to? I've been struck this week by the surprising way I think this book approaches this problem of suffering. You see, we tend to think that suffering casts doubt on the relationship God has with his people. Does he really care? Is he really in control? And yet back in chapter 1, Satan says that Job's blessing casts doubt on the relationship God has with his people. The problem in the book of Job is not the problem of suffering, It's the problem of blessing. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. You see, the Lord boasts about his relationship with Job and yet Satan says, your relationship isn't real. It's skin deep. Job is just in it for what he can get. Job doesn't love you, God. He loves himself. While you bless him, of course he'll fear you. But as soon as suffering comes his way, you'll see what Job really thinks of you. It's not the problem of suffering there. It's the problem of blessing. Does Job's blessing mean that his relationship with God is a fake? I want to suggest that the key question that then dominates Job's conversation with his three friends from chapters 3 to 31 is not, what sort of God allows suffering? The question that's so often linked with suffering in our minds today. No, everyone who speaks assumes that God is real and that God is just and that God is good. No, rather the question is this, how will Job respond to suffering? What will he do when knowing God doesn't help him? Last week we saw that he refuses to curse God as Satan predicted that he would. 
the amazing statements that he makes. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And when his wife says to him in chapter 2, are you still holding to your integrity? Curse God and die. He cuts her off. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, he keeps his faith in God. He won't curse him. And yet that still leaves him in his suffering. How will it ever end? If he won't curse God and die, then how will he live? How will his relationship with God be restored? Well, the reality of suffering is clear. The question is, how will we respond to it? And I think really that two options are presented throughout chapters 3 to 31. The first option is to respond to suffering by trusting in our righteousness. And this we see in Job's three friends, his three comforters, as they're known, although they're nothing of the kind. They arrive at the end of chapter 2, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, and for a long week they sit with Job amid the ashes, patiently waiting for their friend to speak. Indeed, until we're ready to do the same for a friend of ours, we should not be too quick to point the finger of judgment at them for the wrong things they say that follow. Nonetheless, when Job finally does speak to protest his innocence and to speak longingly of death, it is too much for them. And one by one, they bring their theology to bear against Job. For Job's suffering, they say, is clearly a result of Job's sin. That's their theory. And from their arrival in chapter 3 to their eventual silence 28 chapters later, they never move from their position. One after one, they apply this theory ruthlessly to Job. Let's uh, look through at some representative verses. Eliphaz kicks off, chapter 4, verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. See, here's the principle, Job. If you're suffering, you must have sinned. Well, then later Bildad twists the knife even more. Chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. <laughs> it's not just Job that's getting what he deserved. His ten children, crushed as the home they were in collapsed, were guilty too. Good riddance to them. And then Zophar gets his turn over the page. Chapter 11, verse 4. You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am a pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak and that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, Joe, I'm looking forward to seeing you get what's coming to you. You think your present state is bad? Just wait until God really deals with your sin. 
That then is what Job's friends have to say. Sin leads to suffering, so Job's suffering must be the result of Job's sin. And if if Job feels distant from God, if God has turned on him, then the solution is for Job to repent and become righteous. So again, chapter 11, verse 13. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. On what basis can we have a true relationship with God? What does Job need? He needs righteousness. He needs to put away his sin and start living well. That's their theory. And so their words do nothing but add to Job's grief. So chapter 19, verse 1. We've made it back there. Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. Of course, Job's friends have their equivalents today. People who are ready, equipped with an arsenal of verses out of context to use as weapons against their friends. Your prayer wasn't answered? Well, you must be lacking in faith. Times are tough, are they? Well, you know you reap what you sow. And sometimes it's not others but ourselves. We can be so quick to forge a link between our experience and our theology. When things are going well, don't we assume that God is with us? That he favours us? That our lives are in good shape spiritually? But when suffering comes, do we waver? Do we think that knowing the Lord doesn't help us? Do we think that the Lord has turned his face away? I think of people that I've met over the past few years. The woman whose husband had died suddenly. Another who was struggling with loneliness and singleness. A couple who had had miscarriage after miscarriage. A man made redundant for the third time in five years. All had the same thought. What does God think he's doing? What have I done to deserve this? And when they concluded that they had done nothing to deserve it, then what? Would they curse God? Would they wash their hands of him? That was their temptation. Would they do as Satan predicts Job would do? And not just them, but what will we do when our turn comes round? The first thing that we must do is to stop looking to our righteousness. Stop trying to provide a link between my situation and my sin. Stop thinking that in this life Christians are promised an easy ride so long as we trust God. We are not. Job was a better man than we will ever be. 
and yet he suffered as I hope we never do. You see here Job knows that he is falsely accused by his friends. He knows that they are wrong. Indeed as the depression and desperation hit him in rolling waves there are times when it's just about the only thing he does know. And of course we know it too for we have seen the discussion in the heavenly court that they have not seen. Chapters 1 and 2 that we saw last week. We have heard God's verdict on Job that he is blameless and pure. He is not suffering because of his sin. Yes, that can happen. We see it elsewhere in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 is one reference if you want to look it up later. But it is not the case here. Job's suffering is not caused by his sin. It cannot be because he knows he hasn't done anything wrong. He knows that this correlation between my sin and my suffering is not true. And not just in his own life, but throughout the world. We won't look now, but in chapter 24, he catalogues the suffering of the innocent and weak against the prosperity of the wicked. And we don't need Job to tell us that, do we? Because we see it every day and every week. What could Job's friends say to baby P, that poor 17-month-old in Haringey? whose abuse and death has come to light this week. Job doesn't know why he is suffering. Even by the end of the book, when God responds, he will never find out the reason for what he went through. We will search the book of Job in vain for a neat and tidy and all-encompassing answer to suffering. Such an answer belongs to God alone. But Job does know what isn't the answer. He is not suffering for his sin. Not that he thinks he's sinless. He's clear on that. Back in chapter 1, he's offering sacrifices, not just for himself, but for his whole family. And he knows that he doesn't deserve a hearing before God. Let me read chapter 9, verse 2. How can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? But Job does see that the simplistic answers of his friends don't explain the way things are. They don't provide a solution to his suffering. The answer is not for him to trust his righteousness, to assume that he's done something wrong, that God has put him on some sort of scale where if he puts a foot wrong, something gets wiped out. He will not trust to righteousness, even though his righteousness is far greater than his friends allow. Now instead, Job's only answer is to trust in a redeemer. Verse 23, probably these are the most famous verses in the whole book. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I 
and not another. In Numbers 35, this word, redeemer, is used of one who would avenge the death of a family member. One who would make sure that justice was done. So it is that here, this redeemer is the one who will bring Job vindication. That is what he wants. That is what he cries for. As he has weathered the storm of the bitter attacks of his friends, he cries out for someone who will make it known that he has not deserted God, that he has not turned from him. But more than that, Job's hope is that this Redeemer will bring him life even life beyond death. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. His future will be one of light and life, not death and darkness. And in that life, he sees that there will be restored fellowship with God. The fellowship that seems so absent as Job suffers, though we know it has been there all along but which one day even Job will see perfectly restored, never again to be assailed by Satan's accusations. Vindication, new life, restored fellowship with God, not by trusting to his righteousness, but by trusting his Redeemer. And who is this Redeemer? Well, of course, we have a clearer understanding than even Job did. Because we know that the content of Job's hope is fulfilled for us by none other than the Lord Jesus, the great Redeemer. A Redeemer who, like Job, was a blameless believer who suffered, but not for his sin. Who was left accused, afflicted and alone. Who was given over to death. But one who was publicly vindicated three days later as he rose in triumph from the dead. The living Redeemer who stood on the earth and one day will stand on it once more, returning to reign forever. And when he does, he will vindicate his people and declare us all righteous and justified from sin. He does it through his own body and blood given for us on the cross, the death that we will remember as we share bread and wine together. How will we respond to suffering? What will we do when being a Christian doesn't seem to help? We lift our eyes to the cross. We lift our eyes to our Redeemer. We lift our eyes to the future that he brings. A future of vindication, of life, and of sweet fellowship with God. And we yearn. We yearn for that day. Don't you yearn for that day? How my heart yearns within me. That's how Job concludes. And so should we, as we see a world of suffering, as we ache with the pain of it when it touches our lives, so too we ache with longing for our Lord, our Redeemer, and we wait for the day. We wait for the day when he will right every wrong, and when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray together. 
I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Our loving Father, suffering leaves us perplexed and in pain. But we trust in your goodness. We trust in your wisdom. We trust in your plan. We trust to your future. We trust in your Son, our Redeemer. And we await. So we ask, come Lord Jesus. Amen.